Let's ask God to help us with his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, there are hard things in the world uh, which are difficult and difficult for us to understand. Uh, We hear of one of them in today's passage. And we pray in your mercy as we uh, think about it, uh, you would help us to grow in our understanding, to grow in our knowledge and trust of you, our true and living God, and to take hope uh, from your Son. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now some of you hear of the state murder of those children and think, well, that proves Jesus wasn't born into a fairy tale, but the real world. The world we live in where children are always suffering and dying at the hands of violent adults, caught up in affairs and conflicts not of their making. And sadly, that's true, isn't it? Boko Haram kidnaps children from their dormitories to wage war against the Nigerian government. A bomb goes off in Kabul and children die in the marketplace. Closer to home, a controlling, violent, estranged father in Queensland sets alight his wife and children in their car. Three children die in what is now thought to be a murder-suicide in Tullamarine. Ours is a world where children continue to be the casualties of adults competing for power, trying to ensure their own power and control, and Jesus is born into our world. But others hear the story, and just its reading raises some unsettling questions about God. Doesn't God, they think, bear some responsibility for the deaths of these children in Bethlehem? I mean, he sent the star, and following the star, the wise men came to Jerusalem with their questions about the one-born king of the Jews, and they tipped off Herod. There would have been no deaths without their questions. And God knew what Herod would do, knew what would happen, and warned Joseph, made it possible for Jesus to escape. And if God can rescue Jesus warn Joseph so that the family heads off to the safety of Egypt, couldn't he, shouldn't he have rescued those other children, done something to prevent this atrocity? Why couldn't he have done something else? Why this way, saving one and letting others die? Thinking about those slaughtered boys of Bethlehem and why God has acted and not acted as it's revealed in his word, he has for many of us, taps into the bigger and more general question. Why, if God's in control, do these bad things still happen? Why doesn't he just end the violence? Why does he let children keep dying at the hands of adults, wicked or confused? 
And it's not an abstract issue, is it? For some, that question comes from a deep well of grief. For others, from an anguished horror at the cruelty of our world. And when we hear of these atrocities, even if it's not a personal issue for us, people's questioning can plant a seed of doubt about God's goodness in our own hearts and their fault-finding with God can leave us unsettled. So today we'll consider together what perhaps you think and what others say God ought to do when faced with the evil of a Herod before looking at what God has actually done and is doing in response to that evil. Because it's always better, isn't it, to put our questions into words so that we can answer them. And in this case, it will help us to see why what God has done, as opposed to what people think he ought to do, is so much better. And if this is an issue for you, I do welcome continuing conversations with you afterwards. But let me say, there will be a degree of work. I want you to come along with me as we look at the alternate suggestions. So when we read what happened, see what it appears these children died as a consequence of God's actions in the world, of the birth of Jesus and the star to mark his birth. One option is to think that God should never act if his action will provoke evil people to do wrong. But that's a bit like saying you should never buy a good car because the consequence might be someone stealing it. And we need to be clear, these children died as a consequence of Herod's evil will. God did not command Herod to kill these children. In fact, God has explicitly forbidden their murder. But you say a thief stealing my car is just a possibility. God knows what Herod will do. So are you saying we shouldn't do good things because some will turn them to evil? So not have a child because it will further embitter someone who can have no children? Not teach people to write because some will write lies? You can think of your own examples, can't you? But if we couldn't do good because others would make it an opportunity to do evil, then we would be forever imprisoned to the evil of their hearts. To say God should not act if evil, if evil people would respond wickedly to what he does would be actually saying he should never act at all, including never act to deal with evil. Never do good. The problem's not with God's actions, but with the evil in Herod's heart, the evil in human hearts. Well, then you say, God should have acted to stop Herod. How? Perhaps you say God should have done something to prevent the evil consequences of Herod's decision. Give all the parents a warning in a dream so that they can escape, get out of the town, or maybe, as he did for Elijah, cause the soldiers to get lost on the way. This case, lost on the way to Bethlehem. Whatever you say, yes, yes, Herod will act wickedly, but God should prevent the evil consequences for others of his actions. But think... Why should God just do that for these Bethlehem parents? If it's not right for God to rescue Jesus alone, why would it be right for him to rescue the children of these parents alone, of all the children, of all the parents in the world whose children suffer because of the wickedness of others? 
So saying God should act to prevent the consequences of Herod's evil actions is saying that as a general rule, God should act to stop the bad consequences for others of people's evil actions. That when, for example, people push others off cliffs, God should be there forever putting mattresses at the bottom. Well, let's think that through because many people think that. Of which actions should God prevent the consequences? Only those with really bad consequences or all actions with bad consequences? So, for example, every time someone is distracted while driving their car by playing with their phone, God should grab the steering wheel. No, you say that's ridiculous, couldn't live like that. He should only do it when the inattention might cause a fatality. But why just then? I mean, somebody might be really traumatised by being run into, even if they live. I mean, who wants to live with an acquired brain injury or suffer months of rehab? So you say, okay, God should grab the wheel whenever someone might get seriously hurt. But why stop there? Perhaps the distracted driver's emotionally fragile and the hassle of repair might be overwhelming for them, the straw that breaks the camel's back, and they have a nervous breakdown that puts them out of action in their family for months and the children are then traumatised by the parent's emotional absence. When you are saying that God should step in and prevent the bad consequences of Herod's action, you're saying that God should stop all the bad consequences of all our actions, that he should be putting the mattresses at the bottom of the cliff, not just for when people push others over, but for when we slip or even when we jump. But if we were never left with the consequences of our actions, how would we learn? How would we learn to choose the good? If our actions were separated from their consequences, it would soon make us indifferent to whether our actions were good or evil, and it would actually prevent us from confronting the source of evil, the evil in our hearts. And if our actions were separated from their consequences, all our actions would lose their moral significance. We would lose our moral significance, cease to be people who had the dignity of responsibility and accountability. So while it sounds like it makes sense to demand God step in to stop this or that, to make intermittent interventions to prevent harm, well, actually, that would make God's actions completely arbitrary and undermine our humanity. It's actually not a workable solution to human evil. And the problem would still remain, and that is Herod and his evil will that seeks to preserve his rule and defy God's. Now, at this point, some will advocate the Rambo solution. Blast Herod away. Stop Herod by killing him. But, of course, another Herod would come, and he may be worse. And remember, what we say God should do for these children, he should do for all. So this is saying that God should remove all Herods, destroy, remove all those who would misuse their power to harm others. When should God do that? After they've demonstrated their evil, shown their true colours? Surely not. How could one massacre be acceptable? So should God destroy them when they start to think of harming others? But why wait? God knows everything. He knows what they think. So 
Aren't we in suggesting this? Get rid of the Herods, saying God should destroy them preemptively before they've had any opportunity to do the harm God knows they will do. Delete Herods and people like him from the human inventory. But why stop at Herods? People with a lot of power and so who can do a lot of harm. Why shouldn't we have God act against anyone who misuses their power? Bullying, hitting another kid in the playground, cutting someone off in the traffic. What about someone who just desires to hurt someone in their hearts? And why just those who abuse power in terms of physical threat or violence? What about those who have power in their tongue, in their eloquence, who say unkind and hurtful things, who manipulate mobs, who deceive? What about those who have power in terms of knowledge, knowledge that allows them to get more than their fair share of the world's resources that perpetrate economic violence? Or the financial power that allows them to impose unfair trading conditions or power in a relationship that can just subject another to their will? At what level would we say that doing wrong to others becomes right so that we let those who do it keep living? White lies, petty theft, unkindness, masked by humour. You see where I'm going, don't you? When you want God to remove Herod, aren't you wanting him to destroy all who do evil and wrong because any wrong impoverishes and destroys others? Now, that will be a lot of people, won't it? And it probably includes you. If this is your solution, well, maybe you want God to send a flood to get rid of all evildoers. But actually, we remember now, God's done that, hasn't he? And he did it because of violence. The earth was filled with violence. He sent the flood and nothing changed, or at least people didn't change. Before and after the flood, every imagination of their heart was evil from their youth upwards. To say God should solve the problem of evil by knocking off evil people, people who do wrong, is to will your own destruction. So perhaps you think that God should have avoided a world where children suffer, that he shouldn't have made people at all, or he can be faulted for not creating us differently. Some people suggest that. Why didn't he create, they say, people who could never do wrong? Why did he create people with the qualities that they have, which includes being cruel? Now, if we're honest, that's a question we can't answer. We're not God. We don't see the full picture. But in creating us as we are, as finite embodied spirits who can relate to him and others in freely willed relationships of love, he created us as people with wills who could then hear his word, trust it and obey it. And the possibility of loving relationship is at the heart of what it is to be human, isn't it? And knowing what God said, believing it, obeying it's a large part of loving God, just as communication and trust are a large part of loving each other. But where we can trust, believe, we can distrust, disbelieve. Where we can obey, we can disobey. Where we can love, we can misdirect our love. Now you say you would have done it differently, but... How and at 
What cost? And why do you think you know better that you're in a position to judge how God should create? Do you, for example, know what would be lost if we were not created free to love and so able to misdirect love? Do you know what might not be if we not be created able to believe God's word and so able not to believe it? Do you know what might what might what may never come about if we'd been created not able to disobey? Do you know the end from the beginning? Claiming that God should never have created as he did may reinforce a baseless sense of moral superiority in the creature. But a response to evil that suggests the solution is our never being or our total destruction seems to be no solution at all to the real evil we experience today. Well, at this stage, you might throw up your hands and say, I know I'm not God, but God is God. He's meant to be all-knowing and all-powerful, so he should just fix these things, prevent it from happening. Now, let me say, if you really mean that, that's progress. If you really do acknowledge you are not God and can acknowledge that because he is all-knowing and all-powerful, he might go about things in ways that may not have occurred to you, ways that might seem strange to you, that's progress. You've moved beyond insisting that God has to prove himself to you by running the universe the way you think it should be run, by doing what makes sense to you. And that's a good thing because that God would be an idol, the creation of a creature unable to help with no more power or wisdom than its creator, hopeless in dealing with evil. And that is hopeless because we need help. For evil, human evil is real and it is grievous and we can't fix it. We can't solve it. We've had thousands of years. Yet it persists in every society, even those that think they are the most enlightened. And when you meet a Herod, see what they do. The problem with getting caught up with what you think God should or shouldn't do is that you miss what God has actually done. So you ask, what has he done to deal with evil in the world? Well, we are reading about it in the gospel. God has sent Jesus, his son, into our world. Emmanuel, God with us. He has committed himself to personally dealing with it, to deal with the sorrows of our world. So you ask, how is Jesus a response to the Herods of this world, a response to people misusing what they have to harm and mistreat others? And actually that may include all of us, mind it. How's Jesus a response? A baby born to poor parents needing to escape from Herod seems so feeble, so weak. Oh, yes, we know Jesus grew up and, like others, opposed violence and selfishness in his teaching, taught people to love one another, to love their enemies even, to forgive and not take vengeance, to not seek their own power and privilege but to be ready to serve, and he called for repentance, for people to change and commit themselves to doing what he taught. Oh, and we know in his ministry Jesus didn't mock or minimise human suffering, saying it was just an illusion or that the problem was our longing, our longing for justice and life. No, he took evil on. He healed and restored. 
But he didn't raise a righteous army to wreak vengeance. He left Herods on their thrones, didn't he? So how does Jesus make a difference? He still looks pretty weak against the might of Herod. In fact, his ministry had no impact on Herod and his like, those with power in the world. Herod's son Antipas, who ruled Galilee at the time of Jesus' ministry, we see in Luke 23, just saw Jesus as potential entertainment, a wonder worker. Pilate, the Roman governor, saw him as a political difficulty. Initially, they ignore him. And when it becomes necessary for the preservation of their power, they kill him. Kill him saying that he is innocent of any crime. They crucify him. And so Jesus becomes the victim of power used for political ends, power to keep the rulers, whether it was the Jewish authorities or the Roman governors, in power. You see, at the end of the story, Jesus dies for the same reason as those children were killed, those in power seeking to stay in power. Having once escaped Herod, he finally suffers the injustice and cruelty of the reign of the Herods of this world. If Jesus is God's response to the evil of human power misused, it seems on that Good Friday so weak. Now, some at this point say, yes, but isn't it good that Jesus knows our suffering, that he's not indifferent, not removed, not distant from what we go through? We can know for sure that Jesus knows us and can sympathise with our powerlessness and grief, and we think that's good, isn't it? But if that is all that is happening in Jesus' suffering and death, it's not enough, is it? We want something done about the herald, something done about the evil in the world. Sympathy alone is not enough. And when I started medicine, I was very sympathetic to people who had stomach bugs, who were vomiting. When that stale, acidic smell got up my nose and hit the back of my throat, I'd start gagging. And unless I left the room, worse would follow. I was sympathetic. It's actually called sympathetic vomiting, right? And it was no help to my patients at all to know that I was experiencing the same thing as them, that I sympathised. In fact, sympathy made me useless by itself. Sympathy alone, useless. If in the end all we get from God is a sympathetic Jesus who knows what it feels like to be one of us, that is useless. But a sympathetic Jesus is not all we get. The cross seems so weak, so powerless before human power. But the gospel tells us much more is happening on the cross than Jesus' removal as an irritant to those in power. It tells us Christ died for our sins, that his death was purposeful, that he was buried, a real death, and that he rose from that real death that death was not the end, his was a real victory over death. And when we believe the gospel, accept it as it is, that is true, and it is true, the accounts, the evidence of eyewitnesses, Jesus there alive before them after he died to be seen, spoken with, touched, eaten with, it is true. 
When we accept the gospel is true, what seems so weak is revealed as the power of God, the power of God that ensures the end of all human wickedness and more. You see, in the events of Easter, we see God keeping his word, his word of judgment on sin. In showing mercy, that word says sin deserves death. That's right. In Jesus dying for our sins, it says that sin deserves death. And that word is kept in the death of Jesus, our sin punished in him. You see, the crucifixion tells us that word will always be kept, that there will be no overlooking of sin and our sin will either be punished in Christ or we will bear its punishment ourselves. Oh, at Easter we see God keeping his word of promise of salvation. For in believing the gospel, sinners are forgiven through the death of Jesus. They're reconciled to God. They find peace with God. But that promised salvation is a big salvation. It's not just about saving you and me. It's a promise of resurrection and new creation, a new creation where evil will be removed forever and never show its face again, where there will be life without hurt or wrong, lies or death. Oh, Easter is God keeping his word of promise of a saviour, a king who will defeat all the enemies of God and his people. On the cross, Jesus has done that. He has cast down the devil and destroyed his power. He set free his people free from the power of sin and the judgment of the law. And he has guaranteed in his own resurrection, their resurrection, their sharing in his triumph over death. The events of Easter ensure the judgment of evil and they ensure the end of all evil. For they make certain the return of the living Lord Jesus. In fact, we see that end guaranteed, don't we? For the crucified and risen Jesus is triumphant over the devil and his lies and murder and over those who embrace in their lies and hatred and murder the devil's rule. His triumph is complete. They are exposed despite appearances in Jesus' death as powerless to stop God doing what he says he will do. You see, in killing Jesus, his enemies have actually guaranteed their own destruction. He has triumphed over evil through their evil. Now think of the extent of that victory. It is justice from injustice, for the innocent Jesus is vindicated and he becomes the just judge of all. It's life from death. Not more of the same, but deathless, immortal life. Life where death has no power because sin is dealt with. It is truth demonstrated where lies reigned. For through those lies, the lies of the chief priests and the teachers of the law and those witnesses, but through those lies, the words of Jesus are shown to be the words of God, never broken. I'll be crucified, he said, and I will rise, and he did. His words now are light in our darkness. Notice has been given. The eviction of all who do evil from God's creation just awaits the time God has set 
when he reveals in glory the crucified Jesus with eternal, immortal life, the just judge and saviour of the world. More, the cross guarantees redemption. Sinners like you and I and all who repent and believe the gospel are not abandoned, condemned, left as slaves to sin, (laughs) admired in the evil of our own making. We are now transformed by the powerful spirit of God. The crucified and risen Jesus can do what punishment can, no punishment can do. He can give a new heart. He can make the wicked good. He can turn his followers into the light and salt of the world. But more, the cross guarantees the redemption of our times. For in the cross and resurrection, we see our saving God has an almighty power and wisdom that can take an evil act and make it at the same time the best act, the crucifixion of Jesus, life-giving, mercy-bringing, truth-establishing. And what he does in the crucifixion and resurrection is the guarantee to us now that all things will work for the good of those who love the Lord and that there will be a day when every tear will be wiped away. Have you thought about that as you feel the evil, the wrong of this world? You see, the cross is saying more than that God brings good from evil. Our tears will be wiped away because we will be brought to see all of the events of our lives, even the most terrible, as Scripture teaches us to see the cross. How does Scripture teach us to see the cross? Well, as something that the evil meant for evil, but which the Lord in his wisdom and power meant for good, and that it was his good that was done. Our tears will be wiped away by coming to understand the place of the cause of those tears in God's good purpose for us. See, think about it. The disciples' tears were wiped away by the same act that caused them, the death of Jesus, when they saw that in that death God's power and wisdom was at work. It wasn't just the resurrection that took away their tears. The resurrection revealed to them the truth revealed to them the truth of the cross, but the resurrection alone, without Christ's death for sin, would have been pure terror. To meet the risen king and know he's the one you'd abandoned and failed, that would be terror. Unless the risen king was gracious and merciful and in his grace had atoned for your sin, even the sin of abandoning him of faithlessness. What caused those tears wiped away their tears as they saw what was the most wicked act as the best act? And God will bring us to see all our lives like that. Abusing power to stay in power by killing the innocent Jesus was wicked, but his death was good, the best. The wickedness comes from our wicked wills. The goodness from our God's overwhelming, incomparable goodness and wisdom and power. And what scripture shows to be true of the cross will one day be revealed as true of all of our lives. 
all redeemed by Jesus' death and resurrection to our great humbling and his eternal praise. It's such a rich hope, isn't it, for those who believe the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. Hope of eternal life, hope of life without evil, hope of the redemption of the whole of our lives. Without believing the gospel, Jesus' death, of course, is just another horror in the world's litany of horrors that we can never redeem. But the gospel is true. It is the living God's gospel, the holy, just, righteous, merciful, faithful, wise and almighty God's gospel. The proclamation of the victory of his son, Jesus, God with us, And with it, he gives to a world that knows the grief of never-ending Herod's hope, not of the end of creation, but of a new creation where there'll be no evil. Hope not of death, but of life, hope of tears gone forever. One rescued baby among the multitude who have died, one crucified innocent amongst all the executed, so weak but so powerful. For this is Jesus, God with us. God come to save his people by destroying the evil one who has the power of death, defeating death, exposing the lie, forgiving our sin. Born into the real world, to be the real world saviour, rescued, to rescue us all, to give hope in our real world. When you look at evil in our world, you can find fault. You can pretend you know how God ought to act or you do it and that you would do it better. Though I wonder if anybody who knows you would actually believe that. You can pretend that. Or you can look at what God has done in sending his son into the world. And confess God is actually more radical, more radical in his intolerance of evil, more radical in his determination to remove it, more radical in his commitment to life than you are. That God is actually more wise and powerful than you can imagine and so much better, good through and through. You can confess that that is true of God And humble yourself before him by confessing with joy that Jesus is Lord. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and in our sad world want a real hope, a hope that is not just wishful thinking, a hope for creation, a hope that's marked by justice, if you want truth, if you want goodness, deep, rich, enduring goodness, not overwhelmed or extinguished by human folly or cruelty, come to Jesus. He is the opposite of every Herod. Jesus who wins by humbling himself to death, who ascends to rule by the power of an indestructible life, not by the power of killing others. He lives. So ask him to forgive you your love of self the selfishness that breaks his commands and uses others, and to give you hope. 
And if you're a believer, well, don't be easily shaken by people finding fault with God, asking what he's doing about this or that tragedy. He has acted to end evil at great cost to himself. And he has guaranteed both its judgment and its end in the death and resurrection of his son. When you are confronted, as we are by evil, whether in our own suffering, and Jesus said his followers would suffer in this world or in the suffering of others, turn to your Lord Jesus and think of him. There is so much we cannot know about our world and the particular circumstances of this or that but we do know that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Turn to him and especially think on the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus and what it's achieved to be refreshed in the goodness, the might and the wisdom of our God who has given this world a saviour. And as you think on him, his death and his rising, be strengthened in hope because actually seeing God at work in the cross and knowing that you are now joined to Jesus by faith at peace with God, you will know your own suffering to be purposeful as his was, working that good that the almighty and wise and loving God works for his people in all things. And yes, you'll also, as you think on him, be assured of a glorious outcome when God raises you with Christ and wipes every tear from your eye. This is his gift to all who trust him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of our Saviour Jesus. And we thank you for the extraordinary might and wisdom you have displayed in his death, in saving us through that death, in destroying all who have the power of death through raising him to eternal life. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray in your mercy that you would help us to know him better Know better what he has achieved in his death and rising. Know more of his love for us in his death and rising. And so be transformed to live for him by living like him in this world. We ask this in his name. Amen.